Good day. Welcome to your favorite place, the trendy place. And this is the Trend Podcast with Justin A. Williams. And I, along with my co-host, Dex Ritter, am here to bring you awesome content from all across the spectrum that is meant to inform, excite, and most of all, keep you trendy. If you like a podcast where the unexpected should be expected, then the trend is the podcast for you. We have a great show for you today. Thank you for joining us. We are better when we trend together. Just as a disclaimer, as usual, the views expressed today do not reflect the views of our parent company, New York Trend Media. Guests are free to speak their minds unfiltered and uncensored. We are here as a place of dialogue, no more and no less. All right, I'll kick it to my co-host, Tex. How's it going, man? What's going on, Justin? How are you, man? Oh, I'm good. I got a flannel shirt on today. I, I figured I had to dress up a little bit. Looks like you're about to go chop a tree down. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's 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 kind of my look. You know, I like a nice rugged, I guess you could say, kind of like I just came from a cabin look. You know, I've been trying I've been trying the, that that out. I've been experimenting with it, you know. Hey, if it works for you, you know, uh, it looks good. I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not going to dish you right now. Sorry, oh, well, thank you. We'll thank you. Off, well, the audience, I'm sure the audience would even if they could see me, but they, yeah, they can't. The so. Yeah, but that's because we're in the north and in the north, uh, Long Island, it's cold right now. Um, it's cold but everywhere, it is, Justin. It is cold everywhere. And cold a lot of people everywhere. don't know that. And the issues that we have up in the north uh, with the cold are now being shared in the south with what's going on in Texas. And today we have a great guest who actually lives in Texas, Dr. Carlin Barnes. And we are going to say hello to her. How are you doing, Dr. Barnes? I'm great, Justin and Tex. How are you all? Well, it's great great. to have you on the show today, particularly because your intimate knowledge of the experience that's going on in Texas, but also because of your expertise. So allow me to introduce you. Dr. Carlin Barnes is the co-founder of Healthy Mind MDs, LLC, a wellness enterprise whose sole mission is to improve the emotional and mental well-being of all Americans. Dr. Barnes is a double board certified and licensed child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. For the past 20 years, she has practiced child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry while delivering quality, compassionate, and excellent clinical care in a variety of settings. She is the owner of and a psychiatrist at a thriving, diverse boutique private practice located in Houston, Texas. Dr. Barnes has previous experience as a physician executive and medical director at a Fortune 100 managed care company. She is the co-founder and co-owner of Healthy Minds MDs LLC, as I mentioned before, and Dr. Barnes earned her medical degree from Texas A&M Health Sciences Center. She completed a residency in adult psychiatry at Harvard's the Cambridge Health Alliance. She completed a child and adolescent psychiatry fellowship at Emory University School of Medicine, where she served as chief resident. Dr. Barnes has also been featured in numerous articles, posted interviews such as GoodHousekeeping.com, Goop.com, CBS News Radio, and CBS Morning Saturday. And her book, along with Dr. Marketa Wills, who's also an author, Understanding Mental Illness, a Comprehensive Guide to Mental Health Disorders for Family and Friends, provides an easy-to-understand guide to explaining mental health illness in a conversational way for our readers. And I can't say how important that is to understand my mother is a psychologist and I know firsthand that mental health is a conversation we're not having enough, but we need to have more. So with that, I will kick it to Tex for the first question. Tex is going to open up today because Tex is a grown man and Tex is ready. He's ready for the big leagues. <laughs> I'm, I'm always ready. And, and of course, again, we have another power player 
yes on our pod today and i just i think first of all justin great guests like you're always bringing in great guests and they're black they're, they're sisters like i can't i can't get enough of that it just makes me feel so warm and cuddly inside and especially well, I- because especially because she's a psychiatrist and um mental illness in our community it's great to have somebody that understands um that that knows the, the the position, the perspective, and and what you know you can go through as a black man or as black woman or just quote unquote minority. So um, how was it? Uh, how was it getting to where you are now? School? How did you get into it? How did you know this is what you wanted to do? That's so interesting, Tex. I think you know my my parents love to tell the story that my dad is a retired engineer. And um, my mom loves to tell me that he told me I had two choices. I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And that was at the age of five. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, you know, I'll be a doctor because I had the little kit that we all had, like a lot of kids have little band-aids and things. And so I I just went on along saying, I'll be a doctor. Um, I love helping people. I love talking to people. And as I went further along, I figured out that I was pretty smart. And so (laughs) I got rewarded for being smart. And so that was a motivator to keep going, keep going. But I tell you, when I went to college and I went to graduate, I'm a graduate of um, University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. It was tough. It was very tough for a variety of reasons. Um, You know, UVA, as we affectionately call it, refer to it, is a predominantly white institution. And it was really hard being a black female, being pre-med at UVA. Um, coming, growing up in the Northeast, you know, I grew up in a multicultural, diverse community, but when I went to UVA, it was the first time where I really encountered overt, covert (laughs) racism. And I mean, I remember standing there at the bus stop, going somewhere for freshman orientation, just dressed really nice in my little white, fresh to death, linen, um, short suit, pantsuit, short set rather, and a group of guys in a convertible BMW, blonde hair, blue eye, all white, just rolled by and threw a hamburger bun at me. And the hamburger bun had was full of ketchup and mustard and it just stained my outfit. And I called my parents and I was like, I'm going home and I'm going to Rutgers. <laughs> and they were like, no, you chose that school, you're staying there. <laughs> but that's just like one of many incidents. I remember coming home, studying for library later than I should have been studying for one of my science organic chemistry exams and I'm walking back I lived on campus I figured okay I'm just gonna hurry home it's late I don't have a buddy but I'll be okay and you know this car rolled by and yelled all types of explicitives explicit explicit comments towards me and racist remarks. And so, you know, that was that was my undergrad experience. And there were several things that could have derailed me from kind of pursuing my goals. But, you know, I'm a Jersey girl by, by heart. <laughs> and I'm just gonna, you tell me I can't do something, which I was told several times, and I'll tell you I can. And I found our community within that institution, which wasn't oftentimes very welcoming at all. So I was not only a member of the Black Student Alliance, I was an officer. And I was not only a member of the Daniel Hill Williams Pre-Med Society, I was an officer. And I, I just found community to be very supportive. And even to this day, I find community to be very supportive. So 
I completed my pre-med studies at UVA and successfully went on, to, as you mentioned, Justin, to get my medical degree from Texas A&M. And even though Texas A&M, I was the only black person in my class. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because my experience at Texas A&M wasn't so much about racism. It was about sexism. And I would mm-hmm. often go home and tell my parents, I think that these a lot of these people don't like me because I'm a woman. And at UVA, they didn't like me because I was black. So, you know, I'm a double minority, but, you know, again, if the chips are stacked against me, I'm going to pursue my goals nevertheless. So when I was at uh, Texas A&M, I did very well because, again, I found, you know, the community, not, you know, my African-American community, but we all, my medical school class was very close and we all wanted to everybody to succeed and um, drew strength upon from one another. And, and so when I was going through everything, I decided that what did I find most interesting? Because I'm going to be a physician for the rest of my career. What of my rotations and clinical clerkships did I find most interesting? And it happened to be psychology, my um, psychiatry rotations. And in undergrad, I was a psychology ma- major. And so I, I sought out mentors, which is something that's very important. And my mentors had trained back up in the Northeast at Harvard. And I said, well, that would give me a chance to get back to the Northeast and I can go and I can do what I want to do and I can be where I want to be. And so that's kind of what got me to this point. And I love what I do. Um, My office manager in my private practice, she often tells me, you're called to do this because I'll just say, I'm tired of my private practice. I want to go do something else, non-clinical. She's, this is your call and this is what you're meant to do. And a lot of patients, because my name is gender neutral and, you know, it's pretty basic to me. They don't know if I'm black or white, but, you know, Houston is a large enough community, but it's still small. um, And people know, some people know that I'm an African-American female and they look for me for that reason. But a lot of people don't. And I still give quality care because, again, I love what I do. Mm -hmm. That's got to be so important. Loving what you do. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I am a professor in my day job. Uh, when I'm not wearing my superhero cape as a podcaster. And uh, I teach psychology. Um, I teach one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love it. I, I love learning about the behavioral school and uh, B.F. Skinner and uh, all, all those uh, different aspects. Um, but what I find with my students is while they're so fascinated by the mind, they're so fascinated by um, psychology as a field, but yet so many of them come up to me and they say, you know, I just need someone to talk to. Um, Taking this class has inspired me to have greater conversations on depression and anxiety and um, maybe even schizophrenia or any symptoms that they might be having. How can we start to expand that so that we do pique people's interest? I mean, what struggles have you found piquing people's interest in getting the appropriate help that they need? So uh, applying what you learn in school to actually getting people the help that they require. Right. And so you make a really good point. I think it's all about um, transparent. Well, first of all, having the information and the knowledge. Right. And so a lot of people, especially in particularly in certain communities, um, shy away from conversations that have to do with behaviors that don't Um, fit into what we might consider the norm or even ourselves. You know, we have to have an honest conversation. um, But before we can have the conversation, 
we need the content in which to have the conversation. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's very fortunate that your students are piqued their interest, you've piqued their interest and they want to go out and have these conversations. That's the main thing is to be able to, like with our book, to open up dialogue so that people don't feel so shamed by, um, you know, mental illness, or they might be having some emotional distress or that they won't feel so different because we know the studies show us that one in five Americans every year will suffer some type of emotional or mental health condition. And if you want to talk about a serious mental illness is more like one in eight, but those statistics are really common, right? But then, you know, we're shamed. We don't have the information. We don't talk about it. And so just to be able to widen widen people's knowledge base so that they have the information and then they talk about it, just like we talk about, you know, our blood pressure or being overweight or being, you know, having, um, you know, um, diabetes. You know, we don't talk about diseases or illnesses that are affect our minds and our minds are organ and part of our body just like everything else. But the difference is that, you know, diseases or conditions that affect the mind affect the behaviors. And Mm -hmm. so when you're not behaving like people think you should or like everyone else, then you kind of get ostracized or made fun of or people say, well, what's wrong with you? You know, and so then we don't want to share. or We're not so Mm -hmm. forthcoming. Yeah, I think that that plays a a big part in just like the ignorant state, right? Like we don't open the book. We we stay strict to um, (laughs) we stay strict to like old to old things like how uh, parents, parents, parents came up Mm -hmm. and those traditions, those inherited traditions just keep on getting passed down and passed down. And nobody ever wants to actually take a a good look. I don't want to say nobody because obviously two people in the field. But um, what do you think? Do you, do you see more black people open to sitting down with you or sitting down with other psychiatrists? I think that the pendulum is swinging that way. I think that there's a lot of room for more of that. But I think that a lot of people um, in, in social media, like they have therapy for black girls and, you know, on television. I know that show um, is no longer on empire you know Mm -hmm. a lot of the main a couple of the main characters were really struggling with like i think it was bipolar disorder or you know they they dealt with it and then you know like some of our stars like charlemagne the god or um taraja p henson and jada pinkett smith on red table talk like you all are doing you know to kind of bring it to the forefront so that you know we know we can see we see people that we might you know look up to or if not look up to you know well they're dealing with this too okay so maybe i won't be so bashful or ashamed or you know feeling like i can't talk about what's going on so those you know i think that now is a good time and i Dr. Wills and I often say this, if there's one silver lining that's come out of this pandemic is that 
not only is mental health much more accessible because of things like telemedicine and how insurance providers may be um, reimbursing providers, whereas before COVID they weren't or not as much, um, but also because we realize that this is really tough going through the pandemic and we need to take care of our mental health as well as our loved one's mental health. And so I think that that's a good thing that is, again, is bringing more attention to it. Um, but as far as sitting down and talking to me, I do a lot of talking in the community. I do a lot of talking for church organizations and civic organizations. And so I think that people find me relatable, um, approachable. And so I, I don't, I seldom get much pushback on kind of being open and sitting down and talking to me. Do you, do you think um, like, you know, religious organizations, Christianity, um, especially in the black community, it's just give it to God. Right. Like that mm -hmm. saying, mm -hmm. do you think that's 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 a trouble that's not helping finding the actual like getting to the trauma and opening it up and dissecting it and coming out? I do think that, you know, that notion, just give it to God or God will handle it. Right. Right. I definitely think that that's um, an area an opportunity for improvement. But I also think that it's not just mental health. I think it's other things other issues that people in the religious um, sector don't really feel so comfortable about. Um, for example, um, HIV or home homelessness. I love my church. I attend a church here in Houston um, called St. John's downtown. And um, one of our missions is to kind of help the least, the last, the lost. Um, and my both my pastors, pastors Rudy and Juanita Rasmus, are big mental health advocates. And so they talk about mental health. They walk in the NAMI walks. They spread the message from the pulpit. And we um, we know that the church is a very important um, and influential um, organization establishment in our communities, but you, again, we fall down. We ha we send messages like just give it to God because it doesn't have to be an either or. You know, we want you to pray, we want you to exercise your faith. That's going to be instrumental in not only getting you the help that you need, but creating a mindset where you can get better. But we also want you to take advantage of um, use. Um, seek help with the people that are trained in the field, the experts to get the help that you need. Yeah, I feel like sometimes there is this um, extra doubt that people put on experts. I think particularly growing in some areas in the country that if you're an expert in a field, people doubt you even more than if you're just a layman. Mm -hmm. If you're just somebody just sitting at a coffee table, just spreading some kind of information. Um, I think, uh, especially in the past four years, we've seen a rise in this kind of pushback against elitism. People, you know, people who have gone to Harvard or or Princeton or Rutgers or UVA or people who have gone and gotten that college degree. And, and this backlash against that is kind of pushed people maybe into avenues where it's not so helpful. Um, obviously, I think... Um, from my experience working with people who, who, who have struggled with mental health, um, faith is a, is a huge part of, of how they get over it and how they overcome the struggle. Mm -hmm. I mean, having that, that point of reference where you can say, this 
is always on my side or this is my endpoint, this is my destination, obviously is a, is a great thing to, to help and is not an impediment. But I think the culture, the culture of silence, the culture of hush, um, just pray about it, the culture of ah, I'm not an expert, I don't know how to handle that, or the culture of kind of um, can't trust experts because they're all these elitists, they're all these – you know they don't they don't really know uh, what, the, what how to really get your help. I think that um, I think that's that 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 in some ways to me I, th- I see that growing. I don't know if you see that growing or maybe do you see that shrinking? I, I would say that I, I offer a different opinion, Justin. I think I see it shrinking, um, and I don't know if that's because I've been in the field now more years than I care to admit to you. <laughs> but I really I, I think I see it shrinking. Just because, um, again, you know, social media and um, just accessibility to different people. Like, for example, you know, my um, Instagram is not geared solely to my practice or what I do. But because, you know, I do what I do, a lot of my posts may have you know, pre-COVID me walking in like a NAMI walk or, you know, a mental health message or a blurb from our book. But, and people will just, you know, DM me and say, hey, can I schedule an appointment with you? Or, hey, I'm going through a lot. Can you give me some referrals? So I think that social media has made you know, people in the field kind of more accessible. And so they're, therefore, I think I see it shrinking, but I do understand what you mean um, because there certainly is that that um, that perception out there for a, a sector, a, a part of the population. You know, it is good though, is that I because I, I think it's shrinking as well um, as far as like the people that I converse with, and even like if you look at the culture, like our community came from a culture of. Um, don't talk back to the parent, right? Like, don't ask why. Don't ask. Don't ask questions. I'll tell you how this goes. You know that very slave master mentality that was inherited. Now, you know these kids can actually talk to their parents. I feel like the conversation's more open, and and the parents are more willing to um, understand. Uh, you know that it, it might not just be this. This kid is trying to be defiant or 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 not listen or be a troublemaker, but hey, there can actually be some trauma or, or something going on. Um, I know my grandfather, my grandfather tell me stories on how he grew up in South Carolina. And I mean, like, talk about racism. I've, even in movies, okay, cool, but just hearing it from somebody who I'm close with, and I look at him, well, when I did look at him, I would say like, how, how do you hold on to that in your head and um, and not ever like really deal with it, right? Like all that trauma just being piled up and piled up to the point he was okay with having conversations about it. But with my other elders, they won't they don't watch any slave movies. They don't watch anything that has to do with that just because it invokes so much trauma and it really hurts them. Um, how do you have you gotten elders um, to sit down and talk to, or is it more like a younger crowd? that's actually willing to talk about it? That's a great question. And that story illustrates and hits on a lot of really important points. Uh, Unfortunately, so I won't say I don't have any. Um, And I'm thinking of a particular patient who is probably um, in his late 60s, early 70s. And he is one gentleman 
African-American, that he is in the age group kind of who you're speaking about, Tex, and he is um, very uh, forthcoming and transparent and vulnerable around his trauma, um, being growing up a black male in the South. Um, Interestingly enough, we segue into that part of his life and his story speaking about his military trauma. He's a veteran and and also some current workplace traumas that he feels is related to ageism. And so it's interesting that those that door into kind of the racial trauma um, was open in talking about things that I think are more acceptable to the wider culture. Um, but it, it really is sad because, you know, I feel like our like the generation before us, you know, our parents and our parents' parents, they dealt with a whole lot, right? And that I feel like while, you know, I hear my parents talking and they, even though they grew up poor, um, they were given provisions and their parents worked hard. Um, so I don't even feel like they had the, op- the room, like you were talking about, like how parents raise their kids now, ask questions. You know, I want you to be curious. It's a good thing. Don't just take, you know, now be respectful, obviously. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's not just because I said so, but I feel like our parents and our parents, parents, they were dealing with so much that that's all they could offer was because I said so. And had they had the space to deal with their emotional trauma and the negative um, psychiatric sequelae, um, and the psychological scars that where we are now parenting our kids could have happened a long time ago, generations ago. But instead, you know, what we pass down is that I'm hurt, I'm broken, and I'm okay. I'm okay with air quotes. So you can go and do the same thing and be okay. And it's just, you know, with our generation that we're talking about you know, our traumas and so forth. It's interesting to me when I was a resident, I never had therapy before, um, have had it since. Um, and therapy is a great thing. It's a great investment in yourself. Um, I have a therapist who I have on speed dial after going through years of seeing her regularly. But prior to getting into the field, I never had a therapist. And as part of my psychiatry residency training, Uh, we had to go to a group that's called T-Group. And basically it's group therapy. And that was kind of my first introduction to therapy. Um, And my residency program was more slanted towards how do you learn to become a good therapist? Like we can teach you the best medications to use. You know, you'll get an excellent education regarding that, but we really want you to be, know how to be, learn how to be a good therapist. And it's interesting. Again, I went to did my residency in the Northeast and all of my fellow residents and my peers, they were like, you've never been to therapy. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and not like you're going to therapy. What's wrong with you? And mm-hmm. so, you know, we, we have to really kind of learn how to take care of our minds, just like we take care of our bodies and we take care of our finances you can't be a healthy whole person and neglect the traumas that even if you don't aren't aware of them, that's been passed down within our generations and from where we came. Mm-hmm. So that's just so interesting because 
my my mother when I was heading off to college years ago um, said to me that her theory was that you can't have blackness, you can't be black without also having trauma. And uh, I looked at her and I said, you know, I don't, I don't know if I've ever had trauma. And she was like, no, I know you have because I can tell when you're anxious. I can tell how you re- how you react when you see uh, a picture of Amos and Andy. Amos and Andy were these two uh, minstrel show, basically, characters that were popular on TV back in the 30s. I can see how that hurts you. I can see how the... Um, you know, when you see uh, our families, we, we actually were able to find documented chains that an ancestor of mine wore. Uh, my dad was able to procure that. And that, but she said, I could also tell when you talk to your father and when you hear his disappointment in you, if you do the wrong thing or his expectations, um, the trauma that we inherited from past generations, and I'll give you a little insight, there was a group of people of men at Princeton University, the first black men to ever be in the school. And my dad was among them back in the 70s. And they went through a lot of stuff at, at Princeton, but they had trauma before that. You know, these are the sons of sharecroppers. These are the sons of construction workers. These are the sons of people that felt like they wanted to be more and they didn't have the opportunity. So when they see their sons get the opportunity to go to Princeton, it's not always happiness and joy. Sometimes it's a lot of resentment too. So my father had to deal with that. And sometimes when my father was raising me, he passed that same thing on, that kind of resentment that led to a resentment of anything outward of myself. So even though he wanted me to go to the best schools and have the best education, have the best opportunity, deep down inside, he also said, well, why wasn't that me in some ways? Or why wasn't that my father, right? Maybe my relationship would have been better. Maybe things would have been easier. Right. And I, I wonder if that's a part of the mental health crisis, too, particularly in the black community. In your book, you talk a lot about the mental health crisis in the United States. And I think in some ways, every person, even if you're of different races, is dealing with inherited trauma, trauma that we had no say in, that we could not defend against, but came down, sliding down from our history down to us, how can we defend against that? What are the tools that we can do so that we, now that we're aware, are not passing that on to our kids as well in the next generation? Right. So again, I go I go back to we need to do a self-check. You know, we need to, you know, one thing, one of the things that I love about our communities is that we're about community, right? And so it's interesting. I am um, I, I did this 23andMe as a birthday gift to myself because I know my parents and their siblings. And I even know my grandparents, but I'm, you know, I, I had questions. I'm curious, like, where do my people really come from? You know, I want to know more. And so I did it like a year and a half ago now. But recently, a gentleman, like last weekend, called my private practice and he said, hey, I'm working with a lady, a client of mine, and you've come up in her 23andMe pool or whatever the the term is, and that you all are your second or third cousins. And so um, he said, give me a call because I really want to help her out. And you're related to her on her African-American side of the family. Her dad is African-American. Her mother's of European descent. She was adopted pretty much at birth, and she doesn't know anything about her dad's side of the family. And so he asked me questions and 
I could answer some, but I told him I need to have a, this conversation with my mother because it's on my mother's side. Because a lot of these things I don't know. And it made me feel almost bad. I mean, I did feel bad that I didn't know like this information. And, you know, my mom filled in some gaps. But had he not prompted that conversation between my mother and I, I probably wouldn't have had it ever. I had never had it. And so we we're a a strong community, but we have to have meaningful conversations with our elders, with our parents to begin to open up dialogue about hurtful, potentially hurtful things, um, because that's when the healing starts. So that's one thing is to not just go through the motion. Hey, how are you? How are you doing today? Are you okay? You eat? What are you doing? You know, but to have meaningful, rich conversations to pass this information down. The next thing is, is that we have to really be aware of how we're feeling. How, you know, your mom pointed out to you, Justin, you know, I see how you get anxious when you look at Amos and Andy, or I see how, but if we are so disconnected from our own feelings, we won't know when we're anxious. We won't know when we're angry. We won't know when we're happy because we're just going through life, dealing, managing, checking off, you know, boxes and being productive. So we really need to get in tune with ourselves because if I'm anxious, I, I think I asked one of my patients this the other day, where does your anxiety come from? And, you know, I'm not asking you when you're anxious, does your heart beat fast or when you're anxious, does do your palms sweat? Where does your anxiety really come from? And for a lot of us people of color, our anxiety comes from, you know, a, a whole lot of reasons and areas, but it goes beyond just our present state today. So to really get to know yourself. And the other thing is, I really love that. I see a lot of my primary care because many people, let's be honest, will never get to me as a psychiatrist. But most people see their primary care doctors, you know, if only when I have a sore throat or, you know, I need uh, I have a sinus infection. My primary care colleagues are doing a great job of checking like depression rating scales that take five minutes, anxiety rating scales that take five minutes to help people to realize that you're not functioning okay. And I've seen you maybe three times in the last six months and you're coming in because you have headaches and stomach aches, but your anxiety scores are off the charts. So you might need to go to see a therapist or a psychiatrist. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there's so many pillars, right? It's never just like one reason, no. especially with our community, there's so many pillars. I remember when I first got into the um, TV industry, it was about like five years ago. And, um, for some reason, I for some reason, I noticed like the conversation going around set. Um, it'll be like, oh, uh, where are you from? Like, what's your heritage? Not asking me, but I knew that question was going to come around one day. And majority of the people on set was white. And so me being me, I'm like, I don't know. Something happened 300 years ago where uh, all that pretty much disappeared. <laughs> Longer um, than that. Yeah, but you, you know what I'm saying. So yeah. um, heritage. Heritage is very, very important. Lineage. Very important. Because um, self-esteem, self-esteem, that's, you know, it all, that's where it all comes from. When you know where you come from, you know who Mm -hmm. you are, you have a trail to go back on. Mm -hmm. When um, my last name is Ritter, that's a German, that's a German name. So it only lets me know that, okay, German people, a German family owned 
my family. When I was at my grandfather's funeral, I was asking his brothers and sisters, okay, like what's 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 the story? Who who do we who do we come from and what are we? And they couldn't answer. They knew one person, which was like their great grandfather. And they're like, yeah, he was a runaway from Atlanta and he came to um, South Carolina. That's all we know. And I was like, that's you guys didn't want to do any more research. That was it. They're like, oh, yeah, that was that's pretty much it. How how destructive is that for us? And do we rebuild that or do we just go forward knowing that we can't connect that far back? So we need to start now with a new traditions, new lineage, things of that nature. Wow, that's a tough question, Tex. I think that we can do both. Like this conversation that I had with my mom prompted by this gentleman who was helping his client, um, you know, obviously I was curious and so that's why I did the 23andMe. And then it made me, going back to that, it made me sad to say, well, I'm the one in the family that did this, you know, because when I was talking about it, you know, I heard, oh, people, you don't know what they're going to do with your DNA. And, you know, so, you know, we have to be open. We have to be cautious, but we have to be open and we can do as best as and as much as we can to go back. And we can still be present and move forward because, you know, when I got this information, I shared it with my son, who's a young adult, because, you know, someone may call him one day and at least he's had the conversation. You know, I remember talking to my mom, but we don't spend enough time. And as you both said, if we don't know where we came from, how do we know where we're going? How can we go places with confidence, with boldness? Um, showing up and like you said, I knew that question was going to come around to me, you know, what being anxious about, I really don't know this information. I'm the only one in the room, you know, it, that just casts doubt. And, you know, then that sets up a whole negative emotion state and you mm-hmm. cannot be as assertive and strong going out into a world that's already filled, filled with stressors. Um, as you would be if you had that knowledge. I really like what you said a couple of minutes ago when you were talking about connectivity. We need to be connected to ourselves and we need to be connected to, to extrapolate that, our history, as Tex is saying. And I think what we're kind of getting out of this conversation is this notion that there has been a discord, right, in our community. There's been obviously a giant um, pendulum that swung and disconnected uh, our ancestors from everything that rooted them. And I think to take a psychoanalytical approach, if you if you study psychology and take that approach to uh, the analysis of black history, I think you get a really interesting dynamic where you can get into the right vernacular to say in terms of um, describing what really, really supports a person, right? Even using words like support or rooted are really important tools to really painting the full picture of Black history and and Black trauma. Um, I think it's true for um, people of Indian descent as well, dealing with the British. I think it's true for people of South American descent, dealing with the Spanish and the Portuguese. And I don't want to make this a vilification of European powers, but I think 
for so many people around the globe, there's been that pendulum that cut away from your distinction, your culture, your everything that you are, your soul that persists. Um, there was a study done that, that said that memory, cultural memory from our ancestors still lives in us in our genetic makeup, in our DNA, which I find to be fascinating. I mean, that, that, that proves that in some way rebirth is reincarnation is real that something about our ancestors my ancestor back in 1627 or your ancestor back in 8 bc still lives in us still uh, speaks through us and i think what i'm getting out of this conversation is that we have tex who's a young man he's 29 and we have a doctor and, and talking about trauma in a way that we're connecting generations Right. And I think if we could have more honest conversations, if we could admit that there's a mental health crisis, I think that's a big thing, too. We don't even have like when's the last time you turn on CNN and they've talked about the mental health crisis? When's the last time you watched or if you watch Fox News or if you watch MSNBC, you never hear about it. You may hear a, a little bit about how some people are more lonely. Right, which is only kind of insinuating the romantic model, right? Those pressures, but you don't really hear about people really dealing with anxiety, depression, or some forms of mental illness that spring upon them in times when they're not expected. When you're 21, you have to watch for that in terms of things like bipolar and schizophrenia. When you're 13, you have to watch for things like depression. But when you're 56, you're not really expecting to come down with a mental illness. And there's tons of data that's coming out now that people at all different ages are coming into contact with mental illnesses and, and conditions. Um, and we as a society, I don't think, are doing what's necessary to be equipped to really deal with the stigma. Do you find that people are still scared of the stigma and maybe you could define what stigma is for us in the in the clinical sense. Right. Great question. So stigma is um, a negative connotation or label that's applied to um, a condition um, like mental illness when um, there's lack of adequate, appropriate knowledge or information about it. So there's a negative connotation. So I have, for example, um, I have bipolar disorder, but there's a stigma around that condition and my family um, stigmatizes my condition. And so therefore I don't talk to my family about what's going on with me. Um, And so I think that stigma is, you know, it's a very um, big barrier that we need to overcome so that we can have these mm-hmm. conversations. Because again, mental illness is a brain, most mental illnesses, they're brain conditions. And your brain is an organ just like your heart, your lungs, your kidneys. But we don't like talking about conditions that um, have to do with brain disorders. Um, you know, a lot of stigma has to do with um, language. So again, not talking about these conditions, but also how we talk about people um, who, what, how many times have we been in conversation? Oh, that person is crazy. 
Um, oh, that person's throwed off. Oh, that person's psycho, you know, or you, or I'm not going to that doctor. I don't have nothing wrong with me. You know, it's just the language that we use, words we use. Um, so to break down stigma, we have to be willing to be open. We have to be willing to listen. Uh, we have to be willing to be compassionate. And we have to know how to support people because I think that a lot of times what happens with mental illness is that either, so a person, I remember growing up on the Northeast again and being on the city bus or going over to New York City and being on the um, path or the subway and you'd see someone talking to themselves, you know? And so a lot of people think that that's the picture of mental illness. And maybe that person was dealing with the mental illness, but that's not the picture of mental illness. You know, just like if you go to, a lot of times I'll tell my patients, you may be sitting in my waiting room pre-COVID and just like you're sitting in the waiting room of a primary care doctor's office, someone might be there for a simple ear infection. Someone might be there because they're having crushing chest pain and they need to be in the emergency room instead. So there are all types of mental illnesses, but people tend to think about the person's talking to themselves right, on the side. Right. So, you know, just to know that that's not, you know, everyone, that's not what mental illness is. You can have, um, be anxious, uh, have a social anxiety disorder and not like speaking in public and it to the yeah. point where you don't do that. And so that's a mental health condition. So we really need to educate people about what mental illness is so that they feel more comfortable and knowing how to be supportive to the person that might be dealing with a mental health issue. Because until we get over being a little bit uncomfortable or being a lot uncomfortable, then we're going to shy away. And we all can be an ally. We all can be a change agent, but we have to be able to face things that might be different or unknown or make us feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that's so true. Yeah. Yeah, um, fear, I, right? Nobody wants to just you fear something you don't want to dive into the dark because you just don't know and then the thing is is that you know once you once you start second guessing your mind you have to literally break everything down that you know and start over again so everything that you've learned you have to do away with and you get to a point now where you don't even know yourself and a lot of people don't want to get to that point to relearn themselves um right i was watching it's, unknown, um... it's, it's uncomfortable I was watching uh, uh, with my my mom loves uh, Young Sheldon. I don't know if you know Big Bang Theory, yeah. but uh, she loves the the uh, offshoot of that, which is Young Sheldon, which is about the main character's life when he was a kid mm -hmm. as a child genius. And Young Sheldon goes. The episode I just saw with her was Young Sheldon goes to a philosophy class. He's in college and he's like ten years old, and the philosophy teacher basically teaches him that there is nothing to know. You can't know everything. Basic kind of things that will blow your mind when you're 10 years old uh, and you've been a mathematical genius. So he decides that he's not going to get up uh, to go to school the next day because <laughs> nothing can be known. And what she says to him when her, his parents get concerned and his grandmother basically pulls him out of bed and brings him to the teacher's office is uh, what she says, the teacher in response is, you see, you're saying it the wrong way. It's a matter of tone, right? You're saying nothing can be known. So you're already downtrodden. Your shoulders are slumped. You look like you're depressed. 
But if you could say something like, oh, wait, nothing can be known in a way that it's inquisitive, it's prompting you to prove that or disprove that, it's a challenge to you, right? Then Sheldon goes and says, wow, well, you know what he does? He starts reading on every single philosophy possible and he starts trying them. So there's this scene where he says, altruism is a philosophy that you should only live for others. So he gives his sister a plate of like cookies. Then she goes to reach for it and he pulls it away. And then it says, egoism is a philosophy that you should only live for yourself. And then he eats the cookie himself, right? And what he does is what I think would be so beneficial for not only people in the black community, but in all communities to do is to educate themselves. If, if you get, if you are diagnosed with something, read about it. If, if I mean, if you have the capacity to read about it, learn about it, become an expert in it as much as you can. And if just like Sheld, young Sheldon was trying different philosophies out and learning about them, learn as much as you can about the field of psychology and what's going on in that field. And what you may find is hope. I know for so many people I know that when I was in college that started dealing with bipolar, um, it was scary at first and there was denial. But luckily, they had the capacity to apply their studiousness that they had as a student in college to the pursuit of understanding what's going on with their mind mm -hmm. and understanding how to best deal with their condition. And I think that's a powerful tool when you, when you educate yourself. And I, I think sometimes so many of us, we, we, we regress to, oh, the doctor told me this, it's a death sentence. Or now I have to admit this when doctors ask, when physicians ask me, do you take any medication? Now I have to admit this. They're going to look at me and make fun of me, right? That fear, you know, it's, 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 that's powerful. That's true. That's really true. And I love what you said because a lot of times, you know, we'll go to the doctor or we'll know that we have something and it's almost like there's no partnership. There's no teamwork. So right. you're you're the patient, but it's also your body, your mind, your life. So you should, you know, obviously you're most people aren't trained in the field, but you still can do all the reading get all the knowledge that you can so that you and your doctor can work together. Those are the most successful outcomes. And, you know, I had a patient the other day, she was in her maybe mid to late forties. Um, and she knows she has the diagnosis of clinical depression, but the more I talked to her, I, you know, and got more history it was my first time seeing her. I actually diagnosed her with bipolar disorder and talked to her at length about the the um, diagnosis. And she said, you know, I've, I've had questions in my mind if it really was bipolar disorder instead of depression, but I really didn't want to face that because I've heard, so like my family talks about people with bipolar disorder in such a horrible way and I've never heard anything positive. And I said, well, let me tell you, people with bipolar disorder are usually very intelligent. They work well under pressure. They're very creative. They are high functioning. And she, she, you know, like you could tell her posture or gestures changed. And she was like, all of that is me. And I said, so it is not just the negative, you know, there, there are always two sides of it. And just as your example, Justin, like, how do you want to see it? How do you want to look at it? How do you want to view it? And what are you going to do mm -hmm. about it? Mm -hmm. That's so true. Giving people the right tools to have self-esteem still.
you know, to continue on in spite of uh, the ache, the ache that is uh, a diagnosis, right? Right. I, uh, that 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 you you still, as Cornell West says, uh, Doctor Cornell West says, uh, he was a teacher of mine, um, from womb to tomb, right? Where we're going from two things that encase us, but in totally different contexts, and that journey that what he calls paideia, the Greeks called that 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 the the journey through change and transformation that we can have the tools to say you know what it's okay if i hold my back up straight and my chin up and i'm confident because one thing can mean so many different things everything can be a double edged sword and just because i have bipolar doesn't mean that i'm not interesting and, and intelligent and bright it probably does mean those things right and and i think uh so many times we can we can also speak to in the black community that with with blackness and the way I responded to my mother was that you know I, Tex and I are cousins, but my experience is a little different than his when I talk to my grandfather because I am mixed because of my father and because of my mother on my grandmother's side and my grandfather's side too. There's some Dutch in there and there's some Mexican in there and. It's a whole different bag of things that I have to deal with, right, as a mixed race black man in this country, as opposed to someone who only identifies with just one race. And the um, trauma that I've had was so specific to me that when I was talking to therapists or times I've talked to doctors, you know, what I've gotten was something that was so nuanced that they didn't really understand. They still didn't get it. Um, so I think sometimes it's the work of the therapist too. It's the work of the doctor to really adjust for the patient too, which I'm sure you do, Dr. Barnes, to really try and do the best to, to give the, the, the best platform for someone to really express all their uniqueness. Right, right. That's very true. And so, you know, cultural competence is really important and, and, you know, I've learned doing this long enough, just because you may be sitting with the same gender or the same sexual orientation or the same race, that you won't necessarily be um, nuanced enough to really understand this person. And so, so again, it's incumbent upon us as healers in this field to continue. Um, it's interesting, one of my professional academies, um, they, you know, we have different sections. And so the last few times that I've gone to their national meeting, I have been very um, um, forthright in seeking out seminars relating to LGBTQ community. Because when I did my training, you know, it wasn't something that I got a good good knowledge base or full understanding and doing the work that I do, I realized that that's a gap. Um, and so we are lifelong learners and, you know, um, first do no harm is the oath that we took. Um, and so we have to continue to broaden our minds and our views and um, our knowledge to be able to help people, whether they look like us, whether we come from the same background, because there, there's good help out there. Um, and when a person comes to you, then they probably overcome a lot of barriers, a lot of stigma to land in your office. And we have to do the best that we can to get them to be a healthier, whole person. So true. Very true. 
Tex, yeah, what do you think? I, I mean, I, I, this, is, this is great. But I know personally, I went through a lot mentally, um, you know, where I would just be at a friend's house and they'll have a bunch of their friends around. And I couldn't be there for more than like 10 minutes before my anxiety ran through the roof. Right. Because I would just like feel like I hear all their thoughts in my head. And I'm like, oh, time to go home. Can't, can't stay around here anymore. Um, but things like that, uh, just self-doubt. Uh, one thing that that got me through, though, um, you know, besides like learning myself, I know we said it already, mind, body. But then the key thing for me was like soul. It's like really, really looking deep down inside. And we said it earlier in this uh, conversation, um, just finding out like who you are, like what makes you happy, um, what makes you sad, what makes you mad. Figure out all those things that make you tick. And I think from there, this is coming from somebody who's never seen uh, who's never done th- therapy probably could use it times a hundred, but I've never, I've never done it. And I, I, we're, we've had a couple, couple conversations with therapists, so it's moving me forward to actually going out and try it. Um, but I pretty much like just dealt with it myself and I got myself out of a very, very dark place. Um, so what are some self practices for people who might not be ready to take that step? to go sit down with somebody. What do you, uh, any suggestions on that? That's a great question, Tex, because like everything, you know, when you're talking about staying healthy, there are preventative things you can do and and practices that we should all put into place. So one thing that I'm a great fan of, and I kind of say I'm a novice, but at this point I'm really not, is meditation and mindfulness. Because that really allows you the opportunity to quiet your mind and to get to know yourself. Um, So meditation and mindfulness is excellent. And, you know, I think that even for someone in the field, before I really started practicing it on a nearly everyday basis, is that I was like, it just seems like there's something mystical about it or something, you know, out there about it. So I just picked up an app and I just... Um, bought Headspace, tried it out, then bought it. And I love Headspace, but there are other ones like Calm. Um, I heard my patient say is really good. And those are guided meditations. So for someone that's new to it, those are very user-friendly. Um, so meditation, mindfulness, um, practices like yoga, exercising your faith, whatever your faith may be, connecting to a higher power, knowing that it's something higher than yourself, Um, exercising on a regular basis if you're able to do so physically, sleep. We could do a whole podcast conversation on sleep. Sleep is very important. Um, Getting eight, seven to nine, eight hours is the goal of sleep um, nightly. Limiting alcohol and substances, Mm -hmm. illicit substance use. Um, Having healthy relationships and people in your life. Like I heard someone say recently, look at, check your friends, look at your friends. Your friends are a reflection of you. So if you don't want to answer that person's text message or you're always avoiding that family member's call, it's probably time to get them out of your life or put healthy boundaries down, saying no, but being around positive people and then just enjoying life, taking time. I always say that You know, we may be adults, but we have little boys and girls inside of us. And sometimes they just want to play. So have positive activities that you enjoy spending your time in. And those are all things that we can do if you're not ready to take that next step 
um, and to talk to someone on a regular basis as far as therapy. I love that last one you said, the, that little kid inside of you, like, bring it back out. Like, when, when we was kids, only thing I was worried about is, is my friend home to come outside and play basketball. And I, I think that, that's a great thing, you know, for adults just to get back to because um, of all the pressures, you know, got to pay bills. Um, I think you said it earlier um, that I wanted to ask you about. You said our generations before us, those parents didn't have the space to um, allow their kids to uh, converse with them on a level of asking questions or being uh, curious. What do you define as that space? Being intentional. Um, like, like before we started this uh, podcast, I know uh, we had some house rules. So having some house rules, this is a time that I'm going to put my phone down as your parent. I want you to put your phone down. We're just going to talk. You know, I'm not going to belittle you. You know, I want you to be respectful and then to not have those type of conversations once a year or once a month, but to have them regularly to know that you're available um, and to let them know, I want you to ask questions, you know, to to just really open up a safe space and to have that that those conversations on a regular ongoing basis. I like um I like I like so much of this conversation. I wish like how we could do this. Goes, right? Like that was smooth. Yes, that was smooth. I wish we could go for hours and hours. I relate what you just said, what you said before though, about the inner child to um this movie Step Brothers with Will Farrell uh, and John C. Riley, where the father at the end of the movie, he the these two boys are just imbeciles, but they're just they're just such children as adults. And he says to them, he says, Look, you're trying too hard not to be you. Find your dinosaur. And they said, what does that mean? He's like, when I was a kid, I swore. I woke up one day and I swore I was a velociraptor. I had to be a velociraptor. There was nothing else I wanted to be. It was the greatest thing of all time. Maybe it was a T-Rex, but still. And I used to curl my hands like this and roar around the house. And my father said, why are you doing that? Stop doing that. That's ridiculous. And I lost my dinosaur. So it's like, you know... Try to keep that thing that brings you joy, but also makes you a little bit quirky, weird. Get a little weird in a way. Get a little bit in touch with a part of yourself that um, has no inhibitions, but also has no judgments either. I think that's such a great thing to teach, uh, to wrap up. I think it's a great place to, to conclude on for today. So I want to thank my guest, Dr. Carlin Barnes. Um, I want to thank Tex, my co-host. I think this has been a fantastic discussion. And if my guest has any last words for the audience, uh, please say so now. Well, just want to encourage everybody to grab our book, Understanding Mental Illness, The Comprehensive Guide to Mental Health Disorders for Family and Friends. Great information. We talked about information sharing and to take care of not only your body and your soul, but your mind. And where can we get that book? Uh, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Okay, great. Thank we'll you. We'll be sure to add the cover to the to the post as well as a link. Thank you. For all our listeners out there that's wondering where to get it. Yes, yes, definitely. Tex, you have any last words? No, man, you know me. Peace and love, Trent. That's it. Thanks for listening again. Comment, subscribe, like, take care of your Follow. mental health. Follow. Yes. 
Yes. Thank you so much for listening this week. And again, we try to post at least twice every month. So bear with us and we'll see you in March for this episode. And going forward, just so you know, we are committed to bring you diverse content from all across the spectrum. So you'll never know what to expect. We have some great guests lined up in the future. So please come in and join us. All right. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody.